welcome to Positive Talk with Kevin McDonald. Hey, that's me. Hi, and welcome to Positive Talk. Our show features the best positive stories and people from around the globe as we endeavor to answer the universal question of why am I here and what is my purpose? Understanding that can change everything and knowing your greatness is fundamental to living your best life. So join us right now as together we work to create the adventure of our lifetime. You know, I don't mind telling you that I really like that opening because it says a lot about all of us in the world that we're living in and what we should be endeavoring to do with our lives. And one of the people that has been so instrumental in helping me come to that conclusion, her name is Dana Parker, and she is right here with us right now. Dana, how are you? Hi, Kevin. I'm doing so good. I love Fridays just because I get to be on the show. I know you get to, we get to talk about some fascinating things and ideas and stuff like that. So uh, I want to thank you for being part of part of my dream. As I well. love it. And it's, it's fun for us to hang out and we get to talk to some of the most amazing people and authors. And, but I got to ask you, first of all, do you remember what what it was like in the sixties? Yeah, I, I I was not here yet. <laughs> well, where were you? I, I wasn't born. What do you mean? You you weren't born in in the, in, in the 60s? Yeah, in, I was yeah. born in the mid eighties, Kevin. What? Yeah. Oh. I thought everybody was born in the 50s or 60s. And that's oh. that's why there's this guy running around saying, let's make America great again, because everybody wants to go back to the 60s. I, 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 that's what I thought anyway. Um, I, I'm just kidding you. I know that you are not um, as vintage as some of us are. Not as advanced yet. Yes. But we we have a guest. Her name, her name is Donna Conrad, and she has written a book. And she actually she's written a couple of books, and we're and we talked a great deal about the first book, which is a a kind of a <laughs> memoir of what it was like in the '60s, and it kind of reads like a novel, and and just all the things that went on. But we're going to talk more about her second book and who she is, um, and how she became the writer that she is from being a a little old English teacher, if I recall. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be uh, talking with her for for the hour, and and Dana, it's 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 uh, uh, you're not stuck, are you? Oh crap! Uh, well, Donna, you you seem to be okay, and and Dana is uh, had to check out and is going to check back in here in just a second. Uh, first of all, how are you today on this? I morning? am doing great, and how are you? I'm awesome, thank you. It's a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's not. It's cold, it's rainy, and it might even be snowing here, but who knows. In just um, a little while, down the it, road from you two, down south, it's going to be snowing too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I got, I got a lot. Uh, nah, it's not snowing here yet, but... Uh, not uh, yet. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's not going to. It, you know, I talked with you the other day, and we did a, um, a show together. By the way, do you know, and when Danny gets back, I'll, I'll mention this again, but did you know that between my independence report, which I did first, and then Positive Talk Radio I did second, I want you to guess how many weeks you could be listening to Positive Talk 24 hours a day 
uh, seven days a week. How many weeks do you think I put up there? Forty. Mm, Forty weeks. <laughs> How about ten? <laughs> wow, you're you've you've overdone me again. No, it's seven <laughs> weeks. Sorry, which, which seven a, weeks. That's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a hundred and well, there's 168 hours in a week. And uh, so we've got 1,100 hours or something. So and my point here is if you want to go listen to Positive Talk and some of the great people that we've had on, including Donna Conrad, you can go do that for uh, um, for hours and hours and hours. And I encourage you to do that either through YouTube or from uh, um, or on PositiveTalkRadio.net. So in any event, Donna is here. Um, she's got a couple of books out. The first book that I want to talk about is House of the Moon. It's almost like there's another, there was another song from the 60s called House of the Rising Sun. Do you remember that song? I, I do. <laughs> Funny story about that. Now, the House of the Rising Sun was written about a house of prostitution in New Orleans. And my brother, uh, who was young at the time, and his friend decided that they wanted to do House of the Rising Sun at church. And, and so they, because they had no idea what the, what the lyrics actually meant. Um, <laughs> but, you know, fortunately they couldn't pull it off. But in, in, it was, but it was one of those things. Music was so much in such an integral part of all of our lives back then. And you even said, you know, there's a guy that is, he's passed on now, but he's, he's buried here in the local area and he came from the local area. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And the uh, one and only Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Hendrix. And you had a relationship. Well, and not a relationship relationship, but you knew him uh, because of your, <laughs> because of your family situation, which was really quite unique. Explain your family situation. Well, my father was an undercover narcotics agent for the state of California. And my sister, who was four years older, had a boyfriend who dealt drugs to all the bands that came through Los Angeles. So it was a bit of a dichotomy for me to go. And of course, I went with my sister as opposed to my father. I was 14. And it was the 60s. So, yeah, she had access to a lot of the musicians. And so I got pulled in behind her as pretty young. Still 14 was young at, in those days. <laughs> you know, the last time we talked, I failed to ask you if you sensed the gravity of what it was like to meet people like Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix and, so, and Donovan and so many others from that time period did it did it strike you as being this is really cool or was it like here's a guy who can play a guitar and his name is jimmy and he's a nice guy no i even at the time especially with jimmy hendrix because i was at a concert and his music just completely blew my mind to use the parlance of the time and um and then when i ended up because i was young and cute and that thrown in the back of a limousine which happened to young women at that time and taken to a party i was just out of, completely out of my element but his music always meant something to me and i knew he was special 
And in this section, when you read it, you realize how special he was because he was kind and generous and considerate and and knew I didn't belong at that party. Oh, that was um, yeah, that's 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 really cool. Because in those days, and I, I don't know how much it's changed, um, but in, in those days, a cute girl could get backstage pretty quickly, but sometimes you couldn't get out of being backstage, if you know what I mean. Or out of the party. When you're thrown in a limo, driven up into Laurel Canyon, up in the, the dark recesses of Laurel Canyon back in the 60s, <clears throat> you had no way home. Unless they let you out, and they didn't generally do that for a while. They generally didn't do that. <laughs> so I was very fortunate that Jimi Hendrix was there. Now, did it dawn on them that you were a 14-year-old child when you were getting thrown in the back you, of a limousine? You know, I, at the time, it seemed young to me. But I listened to an interview with um, Crosby. Ah. And he was saying, so the party I ended up at was at Mickey Dolan's house, oh, one of the monkeys. Really? <laughs> and the, the in an interview, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Crosby said, oh, yeah, we loved going over to his house because he always had little teeny boppers there, you know, and nothing's as good as a 14 or 15 year old. And that kind of uh, blew my mind again. I read that as an adult and I'm like, huh. Okay, so I wasn't the only one that was major underage to be at no. those parties. Well, and and you were starstruck, and if, to to be a fourteen year old girl and get uh, thrown in the back of a limousine with some rock stars that you just saw on stage and and stuff, and it's it's you, you can't blame a fourteen year old girl for doing that because she has no at that point in time you had no idea what potentially no reference. Yeah, what could end up happening to you? And on top of it, there were some mind-altering drugs involved. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Timothy Leary, as we did last time we talked. Yes, well, you know, and that's one of the things I can tell you I have never taken LSD or any, you know, acid or any of, what does it do? I have, I said to this day, I still don't, I'm 60 something and I still don't know what LSD does. What does it do? For me at that time, it uh, normalized my life. So my situation was so bizarre and my father incredibly violent and kind of a uh, paranoid schizophrenic and and the whole world was so divided that it it rationalized and said, okay, this is normalcy for for me. That's what it did for me. I think overall it as the the saying went, it expanded your mind. So you saw beyond the narrow kind confines of reality. And I think it was a precursor to my being an artist. And on my Facebook page, I have a quote from Nietzsche that says, um, no artist tolerates reality. Oh. <laughs> so I think that kind of feeds back to the 60s. Yes. And, and, and uh, Go ahead. No, that's it. <laughs> you know, and, and in looking at your book and looking through it and stuff, I 
and living there in the 60s, there is a misperception, I think, uh, about, and, and I think most people that lived in the 60s, which means if you lived in the 60s, you were actually born in the 50s to remember the decade of the 60s. And um, I think that there's a lot of misnomers about, you know, the good old days and how wonderful it was. And, and there's, there's even some guy, I don't know, I can't, can't place who exactly it is, but this uh, um, make America great again thing, um, <laughs> which, which if, if you remember women could not, you know, like open their own checking account and they couldn't get a credit card and in the sixties and if they were, uh, they didn't make nearly the same amount of money. There was a, a racial issue going on. There were um, assassinations happening. Um, yeah. And there was, oh, by the way, there was a, a war in Southeast Asia that, uh, that uh, many, 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 many people came back from and were wounded either mentally or physically or both. Um, so it wasn't, when we're looking about, I love your opinion on that. When we look at the good old days, I, I think that there was some good things, but there also was a dark seedy side. Absolutely. And in why I wanted to write this book was to show what it was like to be alive and to be an ordinary person in the 60s. And the book is not a fun romp or anything. It's it's the it shows the dark underbelly of the 60s. Everything that you just mentioned about women's rights, about civil rights, about um, just personal rights. When someone could come in and a young man is going to college and they rip him out and put him in a uniform and send him over as cannon fodder. And we fought against that totalitarianism. And it was a dark time. And the country was incredibly divided. And there was a lot of hate thrown back and forth. And I was a part of the peace movement. And I just retired from it when our side, the, the quote, peace lovers, uh, started getting violent. And I'm like, you can never fight violence with violence. And so the weathermen started coming up, other people, they started burning buildings and that. And I just backed off and said, mm -hmm. OK, I will I will keep my own um, way of fighting peace of, of I guess it would be nonviolence protest with Martin Luther King Jr. You know, you just can't fight violence with violence. You can, but I don't find it effective. It, it, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, and but unfortunately, there is a price to be paid when you are nonviolent, and the other side is allowing themselves to be violent. And it's like it's mm -hmm. it's like it would be very interesting to have <clears throat> today's technology. When Martin Luther King was crossing the bridge in Selma, Alabama, mm -hmm. I believe it was, and and they were attacked and with dogs and 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 beaten and all that kind of stuff as they were marching for peace. And yes. and that was I was that Selma. I think that was Selma. I think it was. It was either Selma or Montgomery. No, I think it was Selma. And 
I'm bad. <laughs> I should know that. <laughs> well, no, it's, 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 I mean, that was a long time ago. And, and, but so I'm, I think that we are living in a much better time today than we were back in the 60s because there's a lot more that's come to light. As, as an example, mm-hmm. nowadays, if a rock star, were to take a 14-year-old girl and throw her on the back of a limousine, he would be he would be ostracized from as being a pedophile. Um, I would hope so. You know, and, yeah. and 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 so at least we are making some little bits of progress. Um, but I believe so. And and now the police and the government are held more accountable than they were back in the 60s. Yeah. And the well, whole 68 in Chicago, you know, that was flat out a police riot. Yeah. And the crowds were doing nothing they shouldn't have been doing other than being told, you disperse now. And it's like, why? We have a right to be here. So now I believe that in most cases, the police are held accountable. I think in individual cases, they still get away with murder. Uh, but by and large, the police forces are behaving in a reasonable manner i feel yeah you know i forgot about that Uh, the the chicago riot at Mm. the national the democratic national convention Convention. and the Mm -hmm. people outside were protesting for and protesting against the war and you know what's interesting about that whole thing is i listen to the news every night and they were talking about the reason that we were in vietnam was to prevent the march of communism from going around the world and that it was important for us to take a stand somewhere and that the Viet Cong and the vietnamese and the north vietnamese were very bad people all of that turned out to be just nonsense but we listened to it and it was in the news and it was, and that's what the uh, powers that be were saying and, and stuff. And then it comes out years later that none of that was really true. And that all that we lost 56 or 58,000 service members mm-hmm. and hundreds of thousands in, that were wounded both mentally and physically. And it let was, alone what the happened to the Vietnamese, they millions lost 10 times. Yeah. yeah. And it was, to me, it was an unjust war. Well, and, and, and we protested against the war, but also against uh, conscription. And yes. I, as a generation, we did something that I still am very proud of. We ended the draft. Yes, we did. Yes, we. And, I was really young. But I owe you an I owe you a th- great thank you because I came of age in 1975, and the war had just come to an end, and so did the draft. So I never even had to register for the dang thing. Ah, uh, it was it it took a tremendous amount of courage coming into the 60s to protest against the government and take a stand against the government because we were all raised by parents who had either fought or supported World War II, had come out of the Depression, were very much, you do what you're told, and you follow authority, and you don't question it. 
And so we were up against our upbringing from the 50s and our parents and the colleges, the universities were all, you turn 18, they would come into the high school class and take everybody on their 18th birthday and take them in and sign them up for the draft. Yeah. And you just did it. You you did it. So to stand in public and burn your draft card or to say I refuse to sign up for the draft took a tremendous amount of courage in that environment. And it's something I don't feel is really recognized now. The courageous stand these 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 men took to say, basically, I'm, I'm not going. There was a gentleman who was really was ostracized in the 60s his name was muhammad ali yes and he refused to go to the draft he refused to be inducted because uh and and because he did that he lost everything he um, lost the heavyweight championship he lost everything he was ostracized across across the board it didn't matter his talent the fact that he said i will not fight in an unjust war was unheard of for somebody that big for for us in the trenches it was a tremendous moment of validation that somebody that notable would stand up and say it it, it validated the entire process i think because he he felt like uh, why should I go and kill somebody that I have no beef with? I have no no reason to go do that. And uh, um, and yet you had at the same time, and this also was well hidden. If you were, I think if you remember, you had college people, mostly white, mostly affluent, <laughs> who were able to get either a deferment or they had bone spurs in their feet. <laughs> I was going for bone spurs. Yes. <laughs> Some notable political figures. Yes. And they were able to not go. Um, and there were other people went in their stead, predominantly from small town America, poor America, people who did not have the resources to <laughs> get deferments or to pay for college. And so they were drafted. And it wasn't a volunteer thing it was a if your draft number came up you went and uh and so many of those men did not come back and it so it was a very strange decade and you're right in your book uh which is um called house of the moon surviving the 60s it is an amazing process that that we went through in that decade and and losing martin luther king and bobby kennedy in a six-week period in 1968 was horrific you wouldn't even think about anything like that today it was devastating because both of them were such prominent figures for peace for justice for equality and i i tell you 68 still you know just thinking of the year other positive things happen, but it still breaks my heart. It you changed know, America. what we lost. It, it changed America and changed the course of America because those two men had amazing followings. I'm sure that Robert Kennedy would have been president had he lived. So do I. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And had he lived and he would have made changes to the country that w- would have been really in a positive way of, of getting out of, we would have gotten out of Vietnam and, and he would have worked to make changes that would be positive as would Martin Luther King if he, if he'd lived. I, I absolutely agree with you. And the loss of them, it seemed like for the young people that it, it was just a death knell for, for the cause of, of freedom, of civil rights, of peace. And what it did, it, it coalesced a group of people that had different beliefs and different aims and said, okay, this is what the, this is what the um, reactionary establishment is throwing at us. Now we have to be stronger. I still would have liked them both alive. It would have been better than coalescing. I think we would have come together, the the various groups, um, if they had lived. But at that time, it it gave us a focal point to say we cannot let hate and destruction and authoritarianism win. And so we kept going. I remember those days well, and and um, things like, and you know, there are things that happened at that time that I think a lot of people have forgotten. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up two words, and I'll bet you that you can tell me chapter and verse what happened that day. Kent State. Uh yeah, thirty seconds that that killed more than four people. It killed our trust in the government in any way, shape, or form. The fact that um, National Guards would fire on a crowd, a, a, a peaceful protest, is was unimaginable. It, it didn't happen in the United States. Our National Guard never turned against the people up to that point. It was uh, a shock a rude awakening. And I think from that point on, a lot of the peace movement started saying, okay, we can't play fair with these people anymore. We're going to get violent also. And that's when I started backing off. But it was a shock to think that basically kids would be killing other kids. Because the National Guard's been involved. We're all young. The college students were. And... um, and they killed people that were just innocent bystanders, just walking to class, and they opened fire. So, yeah, it was a very rude awakening about the level to which the government was willing to go to stop us. See, prior to that, there was make peace, not war, the flower power, the the great music that came out of 66 67 and 68 and all of the 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 love and the flower people and 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 all of that that was that but fundamentally i think the um, chicago and kent mm-hmm. state changed the equation to where it became impossible to people didn't want to go to a peaceful protest and get shot at. And so that became an issue. 
Well, and earlier than that, I was at a lot of, um, at many protests at UCLA, at Berkeley, um, even in Palm Springs, if you can believe it, we had, there was a rock <laughs> concert and we protested. And the police came in swinging batons. I mean, I got cracked across the head right here uh, with a baton. And I wasn't doing anything but standing in the front row. <laughs> Bad mistake. And saying, no, <laughs> I learned. Uh, but somebody stood there and they, they were vicious and they were hateful. And I believe somebody can fact check this, but I think they were called the black hats that came up in um, Southern California. And I'm trying to remember what era, I think around Fullerton, UC Fullerton. And they were uh, a group of police officers who were trained, what we would have now like SWAT command, but they were trained to face down it, riot situations and they wore all black and they wore black hats. And when you went up against and they showed up, there was a palpable fear that, okay, this is not going to go easy. They're not going to listen. They're just going to start swinging, swinging and arresting. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the undercoat of the 60s and which was really was a difficult decade uh, in a number of ways. And we actually, but on the positive side, we did. Get, <laughs> Let's get to that. <laughs> we did get some civil rights done and um, the, the Civil Rights Act was passed and there were other things were beginning to happen and that laid the foundation for the 70s and 80s and and beyond. And there were lots of people that were in that movement who ended up being stockbrokers and insurance salesmen and all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of people can fundamentally wanted to, they felt like that change needed to happen and they were, and in their own way, they were trying to make it happen as they could. But they, most, most everybody, or did most everybody just kind of join the uh, establishment and, uh, after they got to, after they grew up a little bit well i i think kind of a general misconception is that everybody that was you know between 15 and 25 was a part of this movement but i'll take one example we were always the minority and at my high school out in covina california out of a graduating class of 300 there were four of us that ever attended a protest oh wow there were four of us that were called freaks because we were hippies that did drugs and did this and, and went to movements and the women in the, out of the four burned our bras and said, no, we're not going to be a part, subject to the patriarchy. But that was four out of 300 in one graduating class. So I think it, we were always the minority, but we got a lot of press. Yeah, you did, especially places like uh, uh, Woodstock. Um, yes. Everybody came from all over the country for one of the best music festivals of all time. And the pictures that came out of that with, you know, uh, the freedom that people felt yes. to be able to do whatever they had in their heart to do, but 
did you ever notice that they they focused on uh people who were not wearing clothes which was their uh how, absolutely how they viewed <laughs> absolutely or very little very scanty clothes and uh, you know if you let's take woodstock for example there were half a million people there how many people were in the united states at that time and how many of them were under the age of 20 under the age of 30. so it was still a minority, but to have that many people gather peacefully to help each other. And for people who don't know it, look up Wavy Gravy. He did the security there and he set the entire mood. There were freak out tents if you got too much. Everybody was treated with love and kindness and let's get through this together. Let's share what we have. And I, I give it up to Wavy Gravy for keeping that whole thing calm and loving. And um, and I think his place was the hog farm. And they came up and they, they handled security, which was handled in a way we wanted to see national security handled with kindness, with understanding. So Woodstock was, now there was also this thing in California, this um, um, concert that the Rolling Stones did that didn't turn uh, out well because of the didn't turn out well because of the hell's angels <laughs> yeah exactly but woodstock was the ideal and that really was the 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 biggest part of the flower power movement and and the make love not war and and all of that and they proved that they could get half a million people together and nobody got killed there weren't any fights maybe a few but not many um and everybody had a a really good time even though it was raining and and stuff and they couldn't get out anyway it was that was the ideal that was what we were striving for absolutely it was the bright spot to me woodstock was the shining star of the 60s 70s that whole generation it, and it was what we aspired to have the world be like yes and we learned that with the music that came out with uh, the Beatles and Joni Mitchell and and so many others that was positive and loving and taking care of one another and and being kind to one another. I think that was the beginning of what has become much bigger of a movement now than it was even then. Do you think? Give me an example. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my mind kind of went, really? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm willing to consider it. <laughs> what, I'm, what I mean by that is, in the 1960s, a show like Positive Talk really could not exist. Um, um, there were other people, thought people, and, and, and folks that were interested in the betterment of mankind and the coming together of folks. I, maybe it was because I was a little younger in the 60s and I was, uh, let's see, I was when in 1970 or 69, I was 12. So I was really was taken with all of the Make Love Not War with uh, the Beatles doing um, All You Need Is Love uh, for a uh, international audience and all of the music that was there. And I really, and I mentioned last time a song that, um, I'm not sure that we can play it here, but uh, it was called One Tinged Soldier, but when, yes. and Coven was the group. And it 
songs like that jim croce had some wonderful songs that that spoke to that um and the karen carpenter did bless the beast and the children which was about you know taking care of the kids and the animals and stuff like that. so there was a lot of positive things in that respect and those are those are really the things that i i remember and i brought tried to bring those things forward to bring to more people to understand that we are in this together that we are all one and that we have the ability if we get rid of the hate division and fear that so many of us have i'm on my soapbox now i'm sorry i have so many have used for their life where that's how they grew up if we can get rid of the hate division and fear and understand that we need to be kind and we can be kind to everyone um, regardless of their situation regardless of their financial footing or what color they are, or who they love. None of that should matter to any of us. We should be kind to each other. Do you agree with that? I mean, that's that's what I'm hoping for this decade. Thank you for that reminder, because I still get kind of caught up in the divisiveness of the uh, political and um, yes. day-to-day life. So yes, there is a lot of positive interaction, allowing for the possibility of change and your show is fantastic for bringing this into the world and to say let's talk about what we can do to make the world a better place and i would say that um i am involved with so many more people now that have the fundamental beliefs of equality and inclusion and um trying not to judge so quickly and that i i think there are more people now that i'm connected with that have that basic that sense of that basic value than even in the 60s and and we're more spread out we have the ability through talk shows like this through through zoom meetings through all of this to meet virtually and to give each other hope and to keep moving forward to me love always wins it may take longer but love wins i have a good friend her name is kim lingling and she does something that's that is really kind of unique she lives in a small town in in uh, um, pennsylvania and one of the things she does is she works with veterans the the local veteran uh, um, association and they send uh, care boxes to people that are being deployed overseas so mm-hmm. that they can get their uh, um, their fix of uh, uh, beef jerky and and skittles and and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so they send out hundreds of these things a month and but she also does something called a nugget of hope she takes mm-hmm. these rocks that that have been engraved with hope on them they're black shiny rocks and mm. she'll carry several in her pocket and this is this is what i think is happening all over the country that people aren't recognizing she doesn't she doesn't publicize this but what she'll do is she'll walk up to somebody who appears to be having a bad day and she'll walk <laughs> up to them and say here i thought you could use this today and she drops uh-huh. this little rock that says hope on it she doesn't preach she doesn't say anything. She just says, here, I thought you could use this today, and turns around and walks away. That and is so beautiful. Isn't that something? It. That is incredible. And it's happening, I think, 
more and more that people are taking the position that they're going to do something in their own way, whatever it is. It may not be big, may not be a radio show, even though she's got a podcast. <laughs> it may not be, and she's an author, but it may not be a big thing. But if we can just be kind, if we can just go to the grocery store and uh, the, the, the checker that has been on her feet for 12 hours that day because they're short staffed and she's tired and, and everybody's grumpy because the lines are long because they don't have enough checkers. And so you get up to the front of the line and everybody's like, arr, 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 and you say, I'm so sorry. I hope everything works out for you today. And by the way, I just want you to know you're doing a fabulous job. Absolutely. Would it hurt you? Would it hurt somebody to say that? <laughs> It doesn't. And to me, that's so important when I'm on hold for a long time on a queue for phone, you know, customer <laughs> service. After screaming at the automated teller, <laughs> you know, the automated queue. No, I want customer service. <laughs> Once the customer service gets on the line, I'm, oh, I always am. How's your day going? And they're like, oh, pretty good how about you you know and they're shocked and it's like these are people that are trying to help other people yes it's their job but that's what they're doing so be kind just uh, you know and and it doesn't hurt to do that in fact i always feel better when i get off the phone and i have made somebody else laugh and feel good about their day it, 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 that is so important. That is so important. You know, I interviewed a gentleman just the other day. His name is Nash Fung. He is a musician and a um, a keynote speaker. So he it's kind of cool. He mixes his um, his magic with being a positive, motivational keynote speaker. And he, you know, what else he does? He works for the crisis hotline four hours a week and answers wow. phone calls for people. He doesn't get paid for this. He does it on a volunteer basis because he wants to give back and we can all do something, even if it's just to say hello to somebody who may not have been talked to in all day or in a couple of days. And, and so we, there's so much that we can do uh, that isn't, grandiose and doesn't require us to to really step out just to be kind just to be a nice person for heaven's sakes can't we do that or do we have to yell at each other all the time i would hope that we can do that and like when i go out of of grocery stores and somebody is there you know with the sign anything will help i always buy them something to eat in the store and if they have a pet, I buy like a pet treat for them. And I walk out and I give them food and I give their pet, usually a dog, a doggy biscuit. And the smile on their faces is, is all the, the payment or gratitude you need. That's wonderful. To feed somebody. Give somebody some nourishment. And I think food goes a lot further than just money. You know, you hang a dollar bill out the window, you know, as opposed to say, what What do you think this person would want to eat? I have a quick story for you. I, I okay. believe I, I believe in, in uh, uh, the fact that uh, the universe, God, whoever you want to call it, I, I believe that he sends me messages through music. 
and and all the time I'll turn on the I'll be thinking about something and I'll turn on the radio when I get into the car and a song that will be directly related to what I'm thinking about will be playing. I don't know if that happens to you. You're nodding your head. I assume it does. Absolutely. I love it. So I was in the in the uh, Safeway parking lot and um lady walks up to me and says, "Sir, I'm embarrassed to do this, but I don't have any money." And do you have a dollar or two that I can have so that I can buy a loaf of bread? And uh, I looked in my, so I pulled out my wallet. And <laughs> by the time you pull out your wallet, you're kind of committed. And so I opened up my wallet and I had three $20 bills. And, and so rather than say, oh, sorry, wrong denomination, I can't give you. I said, oh, what the heck? And I gave her a $20 bill. And she looked at me like I had just given her the biggest Christmas present. And she said, now I can get cheese and we can have grilled cheese sandwiches. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and so I got in my car and there's a, there was a song. And I forget the name of the band that did it. I should remember this because it's, it's, it's an important part of the story. But I turned on the radio and it said, and the song was Give a Little Bit. Give oh. a little bit. You know that song? I do. I don't know who did it. I, I, I've I've forgotten as well. But so that was my validation that that that's that is exactly what I should be doing. Now, could she have taken that and bought cheese and a couple of cheap beers? Not my not my place to say. I, it, it, I gave her that as as a free and clear, and she could do with it as she will. But she but. It was important. And we if we do that from time to time, it doesn't have to be all the time, but if you do, just be nice like you do with with uh, if somebody is outside the grocery store and begging. Um you can you can oh <laughs> super tramp. <laughs> That's it. Give a little bit by super tramp. Thank you, Nathan. I <laughs> Mr. Um um researcher extraordinaire. Um so Fantastic. It, uh, you know, it is my mom, uh, what you were saying, you know, it doesn't matter what they do with the money. My mom, who was Irish and uh, pretty abused in her marriage, but was always um, a, like a glowing spirit. And she raises to say, no harm, no sin. You know, just be kind, be good to people. And she also said, you're only responsible for your actions, your intentions. And if somebody takes it wrong or doesn't do what you think they should do with it, that's not your problem. You you will live and die with your intentions and your actions. And that's all you need to worry about. She was a wise woman. She was a very wise woman. And I'm sorry, has she passed now? Yes, back in 96. Oh. Died young, smoking, don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Small cell lung cancer. Mom, dad, and older sister all dead from it. <laughs> oh, my, my, my brother and my, my father died of lung cancer as well. Yeah, um, all heavy smokers. So, yeah, not good. Just that that was an aside. Public service announcement. <laughs> Get a nicotine patch. Stop it. <laughs> well, and, and the reality is, is that we want people that are kind and loving to be here for as long as we can. As long Absolutely. As we can Make um, the world a better place. 
and that's all you can do so and if mm -hmm. if we all work together for this and i'll give you a great example at the beginning of the show i told you that uh, we've had we've got about 1100 hours of this type of programming up between positive talk radio and my independence report and youtube and facebook and twitter and all that stuff and if you really want to do something for other people invite them to listen to some of these shows and just so that they can get a sense that it's not all dark and gloom and crap and 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 all the stuff that's out there right now because there are other people and i've interviewed over two thousand of them who are interested like you are interested in the in the betterment of mankind speaking of which i've got we've got to get this in because you've got a book coming out in april and i want to talk <laughs> about it april 9th 2024 the mass the last Magdalene, or how do you say that? Well, I say Magdalene. Who knows? Okay. You know, potato, potato. I'm thinking <laughs> it would be Magdalene. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. <laughs> exactly. But you're the author of that. It is a historical novel that involves Mary Magdalene and the Christ and the times that they were living in at that time and also women's rights and 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 what was happening i i think it's a fascinating um project that you're working on they're going to be three books right four. Oh, four! One, <laughs> we birthed another one did we <laughs> yeah three after this one that uh <laughs> will will come out but yeah it follows her life and yeah as as somebody else mentioned the connection between house of the moon and the last Magdalene goes deeper than just women who are marginalized and talking about women's rights. It's people who stood up for themselves and said this, we're not going to go along with the status quo. We're not going to behave ourselves because you're trying to impose upon us a hateful, destructive, um, divisive, situation and for judea in the first century that was rome roman occupation was brutal mm -hmm. and where we got arrested and beat up in the 60s they were killed they were nailed to a tree you know crucifixion was for any Ro non-roman citizen that was um convicted or accused of insurrection meaning i don't like the way rome's doing things you're dead mm -hmm. was the only response and so to stand up against that type of tyranny was exceptional. And that Miriam, as she would have been called there, and Yeshua, who was uh, Jesus and Mary, stood up against that and stood up against the inequality and the exclusiveness that not only Rome embraced, but the priesthood. And in those days, Jerusalem was the temple. It was the seat of Hebraic power. And the high priests were put in there by Roman prefects. And they were chief collaborators with Rome. So, of course, they were going to do Rome's bidding. And so it came down from not only the religious authority, but the occupiers, the political authority. And to stand up and say, no, we want freedom. We want love. We want inclusion. We want equality. Those were all things that Rome could not comprehend and would not accept or condone. 
So that's the book is set in this time of oppression, of tyranny, and what these people's lives were like and what they had to do to fight it and their courage and determination to stand up for themselves and for the other people that lived with them. You know, the um, interesting thing about the life of Jesus was that he, when he was growing up in Nazareth, he witnessed crucifixions. That was not an uncommon thing. Yet he had the intestinal fortitude and the bravery and the courage to understand that what he was saying was in conflict with what Roman law was teaching. And therefore, mm -hmm. he was risking his life and knew that he would end up being crucified. Now, I know you've studied the art of crucifixion for... Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and it, it was as brutal as they come. It was... That, that's why they called it crucifixion. It was brutal. And it was... It was meant that the, the soldiers who crucified somebody were trained to keep them alive as long as possible and the nails didn't go through the palm they went through right here between the the um on the, the wrist yeah on the wrist but between any blood vessels between not i mean any veins any arteries so that you stayed alive and it was the hands the bone and the wrist that held people up and it was to to have to lose the least amount of blood possible. Well, and the other thing is that because ultimately crucifixion was you would suffocate. Yes. Um, but the what they would do was if depending upon the angle that they put your your legs uh, would determine how easy it was for you to raise up a little bit so you can get a breath. And so the art was to put your legs at the right angle so that you would have the longest, most drawn out death. And some of them last two or three days. Absolutely. And then if they, well, this is getting really dark again. Uh, <laughs> if they would pass out from exhaustion, they would take uh, sponges soaked in vinegar and put it under the nose to revive them. Like smelling salts. Okay, you're back. <laughs> well, you know, fortunately, we don't do that to each other anymore. Think about that. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that positive? We, <laughs> I, we have other ways of people being crucified, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, more metaphorically. Than yeah. Like, people, you know, we, we kind of ruin people. Well, you've heard that. In same other ways, but hope, not not like that. Yeah, now they now they say he was crucified in the media. Well, yes, well, yes. <laughs> that's all. <the> difference. <laughs> he lived. If you were crucified, you didn't. <laughs> We've been. I've enjoyed this hour immensely. We've been talking with Donna Conrad, and thank you so much. But before we go, we've got. Uh, uh oh, we got just about thirty seconds. So, um, <laughs> give me your information real quick. Okay, uh, website donnaconrad.com. And if you sign up, you'll get a free, the first chapter of The Last Magdalene. And there are also the lost chapters of House of the Moon, the ones that didn't make it in the book. And also you'll be entered in a drawing to get a signed hardback copy. 
and be able to know where I'm going to be speaking next and any workshops I'm going to be teaching at writers' conferences. Donna Conrad, thank you so much for being here. And by the way, everybody, be kind to one another because yes. each other's all we've got. And we'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs>